no kid can claw four talons across, like, what? I think it's true to form that these police officers have no idea what they're doing. You know, they're trying to submit the show in realism. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Newest Olympian. My name is Mike Schuber. I'm the titular Newest Olympian. I'm a 31-year-old man who never read the Percy Jackson books as a kid. I read them as an adult. I saw the bad movies. I'm watching The Good Show, and now we're talking about The Good Show. And I am here joined by someone, because I'm never on this quest alone to determine if this is a series that the world has been sleeping on. I am joined by someone that you might know from their incredible work at comicbook.com doing all things Percy Jackson and beyond. You also might know them from absolutely stunning the red carpet, and by red carpet, I mean blue carpet in the suit and sneakers. It's Liam T. Crowley. Liam, how's it going? Mike, it is an honor to be here. Uh, we spoke before. We had an episode before. That one has been published, right? No, so that one hasn't. Okay, that one well, was behind Going to be, uh-huh, yeah, a little <laughs> peek behind the curtain. We recorded an episode about demigods and monsters, which was going to be on the schedule, but because they moved the show up to December 20th, and we recorded that a while ago, it wasn't going to fit in. So now I think I'll be doing it probably after we do the show, maybe before Heroes of Olympus, I'm not quite sure. So there is a Liam episode in the bank, but this is weirdly the second one we've recorded, but your TNO debut, question mark? <laughs> so this is possibly my debut, but anyways, a little insight into the first time we recorded, that intro wasn't there. Uh, your whole, you watch the bad movies, you're watching now the good <laughs> show, and hearing you say that out loud, I was like, oh my God, we're actually here. Like I've seen the episodes up to mm -hmm. episode four, obviously, mm -hmm. but like anytime someone says that, I'm like, we have made it to to this point. Yes. Wow, it's sinking in. It's wild. It's so wild and it's bizarre just everything. The show is here. I still can't believe that I was at the premiere, you were at the premiere. Nothing feels real, but it's here and it's good and people are seeing the show and they're loving it because how could they not it's very special when that certified fresh graphic came out i was like oh because i i was feeling good but i was also feeling like if it landed 75 to 85 i still would have called that a huge success because rotten tomatoes the way it works for people who don't know is anything that is given a thumbs up is considered contributing to 100%. Anything that's a thumbs down contributes to 0%. So it's not an average score of like, oh, someone gave it a 98, someone gave it a 72. Mm -hmm. It's an average of 100 or zero. And the fact that it landed at 97, meaning 97% of people give this thing a thumbs up, that's incredible. I'm overjoyed to see the response that fans have had. Yeah, it's been really nice. And we are here to discuss episode four. Now, we have had you on the podcast twice, so people will have heard you give your background of how you found the series. But let's get into what is normally our second time guest question. Which cabin do you think you would be assigned to if you were in the Percy Jackson universe? I don't know if you've taken one of those quizzes or anything like that. I've taken a couple of quizzes and I always land on two different godly parents, one being Poseidon, nice. but the other, which I, I want to be a little bit more unique because our titular character here is the son of Poseidon. I get Apollo a lot and, I, you know, I love music. I love the summertime. I love the sun. I love a good chariot. So I feel like uh, <laughs> son of Apollo fits me pretty well. Love a good chariot is good. That feels like Instagram and Twitter bio material. Something, something, <laughs> love a good chariot. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to edit my bio right after this. <laughs> so let's talk about episode four, I Plunge to My Death, another great selection of chapter title, four episode title. And this one of the four episodes, the shortest, it's only about 33 minutes total, meaning with credits, it's really only like a 28, 29 minute episode, which is interesting. I like that they are showing that they're going to just make the length fit whatever the content is and not necessarily force it to be a little bit longer. And I think it's good. It's never feeling like it's dragging. It never feels like there's stuff that needs to be cut. I appreciate that they are changing up the length. Maybe that means we'll get a really long episode eight. Who's to say? I really hope so, because that's also something as someone who covers entertainment for a living. Anytime Marvel shows come out, we used to do theory articles on how long the WandaVision finale is going to be, how long the Falcon Winter Soldier (laughs) finale is going to be. I'm not getting my hopes up too much because Disney Plus rarely exceeds 60 minutes. And also, too, when I spoke with like the showrunners and director, they would always tell me, the big thing when they factor in pacing is the demographic of their audience. It's great that, you know, people like me, people like you, Mike, are are watching the show and enjoying the show, but this is tailor-made for an audience of like eight to 12-year-olds, probably. Like, they Mm. want to attract kids who are first being introduced to Percy Jackson for the very first time. And so I feel like a 33-minute episode four is a very strong sweet spot. So I would be surprised if we ever touch like a 55-minute, but at the same time, when there's more material to work with, I don't know how you get to... Olympus and everything that happens back at Camp Half-Blood and, you know, the Master Bolt, blah, blah, blah. I don't know how you wrap that up in less than 45. Yeah, I feel like with two of the first four being in the 40s, I think episode eight is at least going to be in the 40s. And if it crept up a little bit, I wouldn't be surprised. I also did appreciate that you clarified people like you, people like me, because we are different age demographics in that I'm (laughs) 31 and you're 23. But big compliment. You told me you thought that I was about your age. So I will take that to the bank. (laughs) I still cannot believe that you are 31. Like genuinely, I was like, I, I feel like anyone who saw us at the premiere, like at the after party, would just assume mm-hmm. that we're like college friends or something. I would take it and I will take it. And this this is me finally all coming to be because when I was in high school, I was not popular. I was not one of the more attractive or desired boys. And I knew even at a young, ripe age of like 14 that my time to shine was going to be when I got older and people were surprised that I wasn't a certain age. Like I knew my time to shine would be when I'm 40 and people are like, no way. Mike's got to be in his early 30s. Like that's what I've been holding out for. And to all my other late bloomers slash non-high school thrivers, I see you. We can do it. You're you're, you're escaping <laughs> Ganymede, if I'm not mistaken. That's a little Chalice of the Ooh, Gods reference to anyone right. who read the book. Ah, perfect spoiler in which I have no idea what you're talking about. Exactly. It's not, then it's not a spoiler because it's out of context. Exactly. My Ganymede Bean knowledge, unfortunately, starts and ends with the two times they show up in the Sea of Monsters movie. Oh, boy. Let's go on to the TV show because <laughs> it's way better than that. Now, what we have this episode starting with is... First, an underwater shot, and I did get a little bit of terror flashbacks because the pool did look strikingly similar to the pool from the Lightning Thief movie, (laughs) like the original one. And I was like, oh, no, we're back. But thankfully, it is not that. And instead, it is a very cute and funny scene with young Percy and Sally. And we do get good trying her best but still frustrated single mom Sally with wonderful quotes such as, we have been in the same position for 15 minutes when Percy said he's trying, and Percy, we paid for this class. 
Which is understandable as a parent, but also too, like all the other parents are looking, they're like, hey, come on, ease up on the kid. But then she makes a very good point of like, there's going to come a time in your life where you're going to really need to know how to do this. And I probably won't be around for you at that point. And I thought that was fantastic. Also, real quick, I do want to say for as much hate as the movies get, I think the first act of The Lightning Thief is very good. Opening act of Lightning Thief is good. Up until they play Capture the Flag, he gets claimed awesome. After that, it falls off the rails. Well, they do forget how Capture the Flag is not just war, and it does involve yeah. capturing a flag. <laughs> that but. is very true. And another thing that I, I really enjoyed about this opening scene was it was the light bulb moment for me, because on the blue carpet, young Asriel, who plays young Percy, I asked him, he put on his Instagram story not too long ago, so people were asking, why didn't you wear a wig for this, this show? And he says, I asked him for clarification, and he goes, well, I'll tell you this much. You can't wear wigs underwater. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, we'll wait and see when that happens. And technically, he wasn't submerged Mm -hmm. in this scene. But at the same time, his hair was getting wet and all that. And uh, I thought that was a cool little light bulb moment. So look out for my Instagram for a little clip of young Asriel uh, teasing this scene especially. Yeah, he was great in the scene. Also great at the event. His suit had like gold, you know, accents on it. It was mm, quite fresh, was quite fire, fresh. Like little little paint splatters and everything. Ah, uh, it was great. He he understood the assignment. Yes. Now it's funny that you bring up the hair because I did note in my notes that there's a good attention to detail moment where you can see that the bottom of his hair gets a little bit wet in the pool scene. And this is a dream. It switches to the Kronos, dusty, Tartarus pit situation. And Percy, when he is transported there, the bottom of his hair is still wet, and it's only the bottom of his hair. So the consistency is really nice, and I very much appreciate it. Yeah, I very I, the, that little attention detail, I didn't pick up on it, but I'm glad you mentioned it. Look, that's why I got two people, because I've been missing stuff. I missed so much stuff in the first two episodes, even though now at this point, I have seen them many, many, many times. I miss like the Rick Riordan cameo. I missed some of the references like D'Angelo's Sandwich Shop. I missed that because I grew up in New Jersey and that's just Smith. Like I didn't, <laughs> I didn't catch that at all. So I am enjoying watching these more and catching little things more and more. I do have one final question though for Sally Jackson though about the New York thing. Does she not know that New York offers something where you can get free swimming lessons? There's a New York City thing where you can get free swimming lessons. I don't know if... She is outside of New York in this dream, or if she didn't know, but like, hey, Sally, read up on the local things that your tax dollars are paying for in the city of New York before Eric Adams cancels everything. But anyway, Kronos in this dream sequence, he's getting creepier with each episode. Like every single Kronos dream scene, he's getting creepier and creepier and more and more clear with Kronos in the distance. This time he's closer. You can see him in his draped tarp hoodie situation. He's getting spooky. I'm getting the goosebumps every every time we get a dream sequence like that is I made the WandaVision comparison earlier of just Disney Plus shows and how they roll out. WandaVision had the great like little commercial sequences during mm-hmm. each episode of like what's going on in Wanda's mind. And I feel like that's the scene I would look forward to every week with a new episode of WandaVision. The dream sequences are what I especially look out for in every new episode of Percy because he's getting closer. As you said, we're getting a clearer picture of him. His words started super ominous and they still are very ominous and and, uh, enigmatic and all that. Mm-hmm. But we're getting a clearer vision. We're getting we're getting a clearer painting of of what his whole mission is going to be. And I just one thing I hope though, I hope we don't see him fully this season. I don't want them to tie a look to Kronos or or a face to Kronos yet. Because mm-hmm. I feel like 
we saw that like in the Harry Potter movies, Voldemort in the Sorcerer's Stone, when he's on the back of that professor's head, looks very different than when they eventually decide to go with Ray Fiennes. Yes, correct. Voldemort in Goblet of Fire, I want to say. Yeah, that is the first time that he comes truly as noseless, big, scary guy that we know and love slash fear slash hate. Yeah, so in that sense, I'm like, and the same thing happened with Thanos, too, of like the big bad of the Marvel Universe. We first see him in the post credits of 2012's Avengers. And then by the time we actually meet Josh Brolin in the full like CGI flesh in 2018, because it was a different tint of purple in, in Guardians and Age of Ultron, it's a very different, distinct look. And so whatever their creative vision for Kronos is right now will be very different by the time he gets resurrected. That's not a slight on on Schatz and Steinberg who are show running it. It's just things change. Over time, your vision evolves. So for that reason, I hope we still see Kronos, whatever depiction they want to paint of him right now, completely shrouded in mystery. I would assume that they would, not only for the reasons you've stated where it doesn't necessarily lock them into a look, but I also, and I don't necessarily know all of the different rules about casting and all that kind of stuff, I wouldn't be surprised if they don't want to lock into a specific personality look, casting choice, whatever for Kronos, because let's say season one pops off and then they can get someone that's more of a big shot name for season two. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if they're trying to wait a little bit before they commit to who combined with Luke will become the main antagonist of this series. I wouldn't be surprised if they're trying to hold off for someone that they can try to bring in and say, look how many viewers we got on season one. Do you want to come through for two through five? That's a light role too. You know, like you, we don't see a lot of Kronos till like battle last Olympian. So, you mm -hmm. know, you're not asking much in terms of a time commitment. Right. It could be like what I learned from an interview I did with Dior Goodjohn, where apparently Manzuka's like rolled in, did his stuff as Mr. D, bounced <laughs> like one day in and out. See you guys later. <laughs> wow. The more you know. Yeah. And I mean, his presence yeah, when you think about it, unless we see him again on the back end of the season, mm -hmm. probably only need to shoot at Camp Half-Blood. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Unless he's like showing up in Olympus at the end and maybe something quick. But yeah, in and out. Have a good one, guys. Let me mess up Percy's name and I'll catch you in season two. <laughs> so we finally now have the resumption of our journey with our trio. They're on an Amtrak train, which makes me very happy. Love the Amtrak. Love that they're on the Amtrak. They're in one of those sleeping cars. I've never been in a sleeping car Amtrak train, so I'm not sure of the validity or how real it looks, but it feels crammed enough and looks like it fits the bill. And I do love that they're really talking about Thalia a lot, not only in this conversation here, but just overall so far in these episodes. They're not shying away from the Thalia conversations, which I think makes sense for the kids, but also just gets me really excited for end of season two and then season three. Oh, could be really fun to have Thalia. Mm -hmm. I love the implied backstory. It was one of the questions I asked uh, John and Dan, the showrunners, of how much of that picture are you looking to paint right now by telling us and how much do you plan on showing us in future seasons? That's a, that's a decision I enjoyed from the Sea of Monsters movie, it might literally be my only positive from that movie because unlike Lightning Thief, I hate Sea of Monsters. Full through. Oh, okay. It is one of the worst <laughs> movies I have ever seen basically because 
it's not an adaptation of the Sea of Monsters book. Lightning Thief at least tries a little bit. Sea of Monsters just takes the structure. It's like, eh, we'll try, and then we'll throw it all out. But the one thing I do like is opening with that flashback and showing uh, Thalia and Annabeth and Luke all running to camp together and seeing her turn into that tree. So that is something that I would enjoy, a flashback sequence opening a season two if we mm. do get there. Because, again, it would paint the picture of all the words that are being spoken about Thalia from Luke and from Annabeth now. And I think it would be a nice way to kind of bring it all together. I wouldn't be surprised if they do that because in season two, they will have to cast Thalia. She would show up at the very end. So they could at least then cast a young Thalia because they would know who they need to get her to look like by the time they have the Thalia at the end of season two. So that makes sense. What I will say about the Sea Monsters movie, and we'll have episodes coming out about it later. I I agree. It's a terrible adaptation as just like a film itself. The first half is like kind of fun. Tucci's good and Fillion is fun. And once they get to the cruise ship, then it just all goes downhill quite rapidly. Rapidly, quite rapidly. We do love stay off my roof. That's a great line, but <laughs> it's, it's all downhill. But the more episodes on that later. Percy then asks Annabeth if she's asleep. She says, yes, great bit. Love it. And then they start talking. And I appreciate that Percy, much like he does in the books, he's not afraid to ask uncomfortable questions, have more touchy conversations. And he asks, why do you give me such a hard time? Annabeth goes on about Thalia. She had just said that Thalia made her earn it. So Percy goes, is that why you're so rude to me? I have to earn it with you. And she basically admits it. I think that's great. And then Percy goes on a little bit, just saying he doesn't like the way all this Greek stuff works with having to light offerings to talk to the gods. And it just feels so confusing. And Annabeth kind of pushes back saying that at least with the gods, you know, the rules in the world, you still get these sorts of things, but it's harder to tell. So Two sides of the situation are being put forth. Yeah, I really dug this conversation. This is one that I know I can already see the fan montages being made from season five of like, this is how it began. This is how their story Mm. ultimately culminates. It was cool to see them both kind of open up to each other and stop playing games with one another. Percy doesn't really play as much games because he's still very much like us, the audience, still figuring things out, while Annabeth is a little bit more experienced, knows how things work, is a little less trusting of people, especially forbidden children. And that her kind of opening up to Percy a little bit, I thought was fun. And I remember, again, it's been a minute since I've read the Lightning Thief book. I read like the first quarter of it on just travel over the past couple of weeks. But I know that there's a conversation later in the lightning thief where it's like whatever happens i know i'll fight by your side as opposed to backing athena or backing poseidon and then she's like because you're my friend seaweed brain and all that kind of stuff and so this felt like a little breadcrumb of what i expect that full conversation to be later in the season because you know they're not going to miss the opportunity to drop that line of you're my friend seaweed brain like that is oh yeah among like the top 10 iconic lightning thief lines Right. Since they put in you drool when you sleep, I feel like they are going to for sure get in the first seaweed brain line. There's no way that they're not going to get that one in there. And people are going to understandably be very excited when that finally happens. Now, what we also get in this conversation, which is fantastic, and I'm glad that this found its way into the series, even though we got this in the book back in Jersey, we get grouchy lack of sleep Grover, which I always enjoyed. And I love that he finds his way here. He's grouchy, he's grumpy, he's sassy, and he decides that he needs something to eat. And as someone who can be a bit grouchy when I'm hungry, I appreciate Grover 
letting people like us have a place, you know, people can see that we do exist and I'm not mean in the morning. I just need a little bit of food and then I'll be more personable. I guess it's like the don't talk to me before I have my coffee. I'm like, I need some food and then you can talk to me as a non-coffee drinker. Coffee applies to me in that scenario. I, man, my coffee did not hit till 2 p.m. today and my productivity also did not start till 2 p.m. today. (laughs) So our trio is sitting by the window, we assume they've just eaten, and Percy wants to ask some questions. Annabeth is annoyed by Percy wanting to ask questions. She kind of pokes fun at him a little bit. And I know that this is something that kind of has to happen. Like, we need a little bit of the butting heads, but I'm getting to the point where I'm like, can these two start liking each other? And I I just, like, want it. I know it will get there. I would have to, like, reread the book more diligently to see exactly when they kind of switch to being friends, but... I'm hoping, and I would assume by the beginning of the next episode, based on what happens in this episode, we will start getting it, especially with all the Waterland stuff. So I think we're going to get there, and I'm excited to get there. I'm really glad you brought up that point, Mike, because I've been seeing this on socials. And I'm not saying that you're saying this right now, but it kind of falls under that umbrella. So many people are complaining about uh, the first two episodes. I mean, they were fine, but there's way too much exposition. This is the first two episodes <laughs> of the whole series. This is where exposition happens. Like, mm-hmm. I, I know what you're saying, because it's like, we mm-hmm. know where that relationship goes and we, we want it to blossom further. But I'm like, it's easy to forget. We're on episode three of eight of what could end up being of 40. Yeah. So it's like, when you look at it like that, this is the time of like, on the flip side, if they are liking each other by this episode, you're going to get the same people on socials being like, oh, they rushed into the Percy Annabeth full relationship. And it's mm-hmm. like, I just want people to be like, I know everyone, probably the most recent Percy Jackson books they read were probably the Heroes of Olympus series. So with that being at the forefront of your mind, it's easy to forget the nine books it took us to get to Blood of Olympus. <laughs> so it's like, everyone, it's going to be okay. It's a good thing they're taking their time. Everyone, it's going to be okay. We're going to get there. In fact, we're going to get there next week though, <laughs> with the Waterland yeah, episode. Right. I think it's going to be totally fine. I think it's okay. And yeah, I think even with the first two episodes, like the exposition conversations don't feel exposition dumpy. Like they found a way to work it in naturally. I think it's good. And yes, I recognize that it's me being a bit hasty with it. And I'm sure by episode five, it's going to be just fine. And also as something that I've pointed out, the way that the show is operating, a lot of the stuff that in the books happen when they're at camp for chapters and chapters and chapters, that kind of happens along the quest. So I feel like the Percy and Annabeth melting of coldness kind of by nature of the show has to happen along the journey. So I think it's fine that they're kind of still at odds. I think it's just me as person who likes them together. It's like, oh, come on. I just want them to be friends with each other. <laughs> it's also the nature too of a, of a serialized show as opposed to a movie because within each episode, there is technically a three-act structure, so it's easy to forget that really, act one of this show is like episodes one and two. Mm-hmm. Act two is like the quest, you know, from like two mm-hmm. to probably six, and then act three will probably be seven and eight. And so it's like, we opened kind of midway through a resolution, and we end midway through a resolution. Like, we're not going to get yeah. whatever is set up at the beginning of the episode resolved by the end of the episode and for a- anyone who's trained to watch movies myself especially like i have to remind myself of that of like okay this is why things feel a little clunky right now mm-hmm. percy then on the train out the window sees centaurs instead of what would be in the book the nemean lion moment and i feel like as a series standalone this makes sense since we've seen centaurs but it does make me a little sad that we don't get to have what i thought was a really cool moment when you read book three is oh 
the thing that Percy saw on the train, that's cool. And I feel like it's probably just one of those show adaptation things where it makes more sense just to show a thing we've already seen, especially because they use this as the way to talk about the pan stuff, which I think is a really smart decision. I think it would just be one step too many to have Percy not know what that is. They have to explain the Nemean lion, but not too much to where it's confusing. Then get into the pan stuff. It gets messy. So I think it made sense to show centaurs here. Yeah, the only uh, downside is I, I wish there was some party pony, like like a flag or something. <laughs> like, like I know they're, they're mostly based in Florida, if I remember correctly. There's a lot of them, but Florida, the chapter of Florida is quite strong. Okay, so there's probably a chapter out in Missouri. I, I feel like that would have been cool if they were like holding like a party pony flag or something. But yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. These are the little things you got to pivot and move around for just the nature of TV. And also, too, any book decision that does get changed for the show, I really don't look too far into because i'm like well rick approved of it so it's, it, it's obviously like he he has a greater vision at stake here right rick and becky would both have to give anything a pass so i think it's going to be totally fine anything that gets changed they would have good reason for it but i do think this pan description is really nice it's effective it does a good job of kind of explaining who the searchers are. You get that Uncle Ferdinand realization from Percy. And I think, again, this is another one of those conversations that is technically an exposition dump, but it just feels like a conversation that these characters would have in this moment. They're on a train. They saw something. They're going to talk about it. It doesn't feel forced. I think the show does a really good job of making things not feel forced and like they're shoving it in your face. When we were leaving the fan screening in Boston on Monday, I took some of my friends to go see it. And one of my best friends was like, man, all I could think about after Percy killed the Minotaur is like how cool it's going to be when the Minotaur shows back up in season five. And on the flip side, I got that same feeling when Grover's talking about Pan. All I could think about was it's Battle of the Labyrinth, right? Yes, it is. Like, oh my God, that moment of like, here's Grover talking about it. I'm getting chills right now. Like here's young Aryan Samhadri, I believe like 14 years old when he shot this. He might be like 20, 22 when they're shooting his actual face-to-face -face scene with Pan. And it's like, like I said before, I can see the One Direction Night Changes edits right now of like, this is how it started. This is where we get to. <laughs> and I also love identifying Grover's purpose because he, Aryan has said so much. It's easy to forget that Grover is his own character because so much of what he's tasked with is helping Percy, is helping Annabeth, is being kind of the supporting character within the show to anyone he's sharing the screen with. And this was a great moment of like, no, Grover himself has his own ultimate quest and it's not as clearly defined as, as what Percy's going through, what, what Annabeth is going through because no one has ever done it before. I love that. Yeah. And the show's doing a good job of it because we've seen Grover moments alone with Grover and not Percy. Him looking at Percy longingly when he's first going on that walk with Chiron, him consulting the council, talking to Helena, the tree nymph. We're getting some of those Grover solo moments. And I think it's going to be really fun when they get into Sea of Monsters. I'm interested to see how they do it. I do feel like they're going to want Aryan to be a major player in the show, even though in that book, it's kind of more like Grover's on ice as we bring in Tyson. I think that the show is going to show more of those things of what's it like when he's with Polyphemus and all of that. And I think that will truly cement what you're saying, that Grover is not just Percy's sidekick. He's not just Ron Weasley. He is truly going on his own journey. And he's his own character, for sure. 
So Annabeth then starts clarifying stuff about the prophecies because Percy was wondering about that. Annabeth gives him the notion that sometimes it's vague and you don't really know what it is and you kind of have to let it come to you rather than force it. And then they are interrupted by the train police who have them go to their cabin. They ask what cabin they were in. They were 17B. And then they are trying to blame these three kids for the destruction. We saw some sort of flying creature fly into the window. And now we see that it's destroyed. There's stuff all flying around and they're blaming it on them, to which Percy replies, oh, come on, in a very angry New York move. And I love that a character that I have seen in the books, Acap Jackson, is in the show. He hates the police. <laughs> it's great. He is all about standing up to them. And Annabeth doubling down, asking twice if they're under arrest. Smart. She knows what to do, knows how to handle yourself in a situation. I like it. I was screaming at the screen when this was happening. So I was like, do you not see the claw mark? There's your evidence. <laughs> Like, I understand kids can break a window. No kid can claw four talons across the banister up in the, like, top of the bunk. Like, what? I think it's true to form that these police officers have no idea what they're doing. You know, they're trying to submit the show in realism. <laughs> so then they are sitting back in their chairs, and you see the cops kind of whispering back and forth. And Percy has a great line where he says, we're just killing time until we find out that guy's a werewolf, right? It's just great. It's so perfect that he would guess that he's a monster but not say a greek one it's a little tiny thing like that that i really appreciate the joke where your instinct is to be like oh percy how ridiculous it couldn't be a werewolf it would have to be compe or whatever i didn't even process that but yeah that's a good shout he's still getting acclimated to the world mm -hmm. and then we have the introduction of suzanne crier as echidna and she is great i loved her as an actress in Silicon Valley. I was very excited for her to be cast as Echidna. I like the spin that she puts on Echidna. Like, the concerned mother makes sense for the mother of monsters. They take her in a bit of a different direction, but I think it makes her way more ominous and super unsettling in how calm she is. It's really well done. I thought she did a fantastic job throughout this whole episode. Uh, yeah, Suzanne Cryer especially is like with like the Jason Manzukis and the Glenn Tyron camp of like Glenn Terman, excuse me. I like combined Terman with Kyron and made Tyron, <laughs> whatever. All the guest stars, all like the older actors involved in this understand that their characters are super lived in, which I really appreciate because obviously like the main leads, not only are they new characters, but they're fairly new actors. And like, there are moments in this episode where I'm like, okay, we are working with kid actors. We don't need to judge them like they're trying to win, you know, Academy Awards right now. Like they, they are still finding their footing as this episode goes on. While the Suzanne Criers of the world, they approach their characters not like, oh, hello, I'm Echidna. I've been around for so long and here I'm going to tell you everything. It's like, no, just the way she carries herself is like, oh, no, this has been a major player in this world for a long, long time. And just like it's the subtleties. It's understanding that the world around you knows who you are. So just approach it like that. And I thought Glenn Turman did a great job of this as Chiron in, in the first episode. I thought Jason Manzukis did a great job of this as uh, Mr. D in the second episode. The third episode, oh my God, Jessica Parker Kennedy as Medusa. And Suzanne Cryer just carries on that momentum very, very strongly. And I'm crossing every finger, everything in my being uh, that Adam Copeland does that next week. Oh, Edge is going to be so good. He's going to be fantastic. I have no doubts. No doubts. Percy now 
in response to Echidna saying a little bit of things once it's pretty clear that she is a monster. Percy talks smack, which I'm glad we're getting smack talking, taunting Percy Jackson. He says, we faced a few monsters like you and we've sent them all packing, which is good. That's a good little dig. And it's funny seeing that they have defeated one monster (laughs) and or I guess two. I guess they defeated Electo as well. So they have done a couple, but it's great. And Echidna is not intimidated at all. She is just ready to let the little pet train and hunt and go after them. I like the practical effect of it all. Whatever they did to make the little dog carrying case shake around, I don't know if they literally just had someone underneath shaking it, but I liked that it was really just a bag being shook as opposed to some CGI rumbling. It looked very real because I'm assuming it was fully practical. Yeah, those little things make the world of a difference. And uh, it also allowed the Chimera's full reveal to be that much more impactful. Yes, for sure. And the other thing I really like about the scene, because Echidna does establish there is a purpose to what she's doing with the monster, it makes her villain monologue make sense because she's trying to scare the children and thus have the Chimera be trained to smell and track fear. So it's one of the few times where a villain monologue has a reason. You know, I am vamping because I want you to be scared as opposed to other things where it's like, why did you just explain the entire situation to James Bond? Now he knows what to do. (laughs) So I appreciate that. This was fun. And then we have more of a scary scene where the tail of the chimera comes out and stabs Percy in the chest. And Annabeth returns with a stab of her own. We saw her getting that dagger out and out and she stabs the tail and then they begin to run away they escape the train and then they are on the move and when they're running across the tracks i don't know if it's just because i watched this movie very recently but it gave me huge train to busan energy just like the empty train tracks with people running across from something scary really felt like that movie to me (laughs) sure yeah i like that comparison something that i'm i'm was so glad they did was that, you know, the next step is going to the St. Louis Arch because I was so scared. I'm watching this scene. I've watched the trailers millions of times at this point. And I'm like piecing together in my head. I was like, "Uh uh-oh, that scene of Annabeth stabbing the Chimera just happened and it's on a train car. Is this Mm -hmm. whole battle about to take place on a train? And I was like, again, mm -hmm. like I know that these are book changes that Rick and Becky are approving, but I was like, don't take away the St. Louis Arch. Like, we need to have that scene. And I was so relieved when the train stopped and they got off it. I was like, okay, we are actually going to see it. Because I understand, too, the the task of, like, in my head, now the, the film reporter in my head is thinking, and I'm like, okay, well, it probably would have been very expensive to do what they have to do at the St. Louis Arch. So maybe they did cut it, but... Rest assured, all my woes were were solved very quickly. Yeah, I was worried as well. The line that had me the most worried was when they are getting questioned. Annabeth says, we can't spend our day answering questions in a St. Louis police station. And I was like, oh, don't have the train going through St. Louis be St. Louis. And I was worried because of that. But I felt confident that they were going to be in the arch because the Chimera clip in the trailer, I had a slight argument about this with Phoebe from Monster Donut when we were talking about Comic-Con and trailer stuff. 
she had picked up on the stabbing of the tail having windows on the side. So she thought the whole attack happened on the train. But when you see even in the trailer, the chimera walking, I was like, that looks like what's supposed to be the top of the arch. Like I'd never been to the top of the arch, but that looks not like a train. And we were going back and forth about is the fight on the train or is the fight in the arch? And it's funny that we are both correct. <laughs> it's on the train and then the arch. But yeah, I was really starting to get stressed that they wouldn't go to the arch. I'm like, how are they going to figure out the water powers? What are they going to do? So I'm glad they get to the arch under different circumstances, but they get there. Before we get into that, though, let's take our little mid-roll break here, the lightning brief, talk about updates with the podcast, stuff like that, and then we'll talk about the rest of the episode. Hello and welcome to the Lightning Brief Shubio edition. That is correct. I'm back in New York City. Holiday travels are complete and I'm excited to talk about new things for the podcast, especially now that wildly we are halfway through this season of the Percy Jackson show. If you have finished the episode, but I guess not halfway through what I'm posting because there's still half of this episode and then there's bonus stuff. Anyway, you may have noticed that I've been posting stuff on Mondays and then these episodes on Wednesdays after the show airs on Tuesdays. There will still be more bonus content to come, other interviews in the works, especially if you enjoyed Suzanne Cryer's performance as Echidna in this episode. But I just want to give the heads up that I'm not sure that I'll be able to get the episodes of the podcast about the episodes of the TV show up as quickly as I have been for the first four. Some stuff may change where that's possible, but I will be working as quickly as I can to get those out not too long after the episode airs, but it might not be exactly on Wednesday, might be like Thursday or Friday, just depends on how workflow things go. But basically, if you follow the show on social media, and if you are subscribed to it with whatever podcasting app you are using, then whenever an episode goes live, you will be notified. And I will try to update the schedule over at the newsolympian.com slash about the best I can. But things are kind of up in the air, and I'm not exactly sure how things are going to go. So I'm just going to do my best. Now, other things with the podcast, we are currently restocking some of the out of stock merch items. I believe at the time of recording that the camp regular person shirts are still out of stock. We still have some beads though, and the pens are being restocked. So we are working on getting those stocked. And then also we've got live shows coming up. Now it's 2024. 2020 tour is here, baby. We've got a whole mess of shows coming your way, and I would love to see you at those shows. Got a Florida run of shows in February on the 8th, 9th, and 10th. We will be in Gainesville, then Tampa, then Orlando. And then February 18th, I'll be in Denver. That show is getting close to selling out. So if you're thinking about getting tickets, you should get those. And then February 20th, we'll be in Phoenix and then doing a North Carolina run in March. March 9th and 10th, we'll be in Raleigh and then Charlotte. You can get tickets to all of these at thenewestolympian.com slash live, and it will be very fun. All the shows are going to be a blast, and you should come. It'll be a good time. Come through. Make some new friends. It's great. It's They're very fun. Now, speaking of groups of wonderful people being together, there's a lot of folks making this show possible on Patreon. If you go to thenewsolympian.com slash Patreon, you can get a whole bunch of bonus content in exchange for your support of the podcast and helping me do this as a full-time independent podcast. Boy, I am so grateful. I'm eternally grateful that I get to do this as a job, and that is all possible thanks to the folks who are supporting on Patreon. And I want to give a special shout out to folks who have joined recently. I want to give a shout out to the Skyler sisters, Scott Sheldon, Sophie, and Natanya Page, who have recently upgraded to the producer level status at our Ultra God tier. I go through the list every now and then, and sometimes the upgrades, I don't get notified by those, so sometimes I miss them. So I should have been saying your names earlier. I apologize. Same goes for Demigod Nurse and Zachary Hamilton, who I believe were Ultra Gods at one point and then might have dipped. 
ribbed but are back. So for all of you, thank you so much. And now I will be saying your name in the credits every single episode that you are supporting. So don't worry about that. And also, I want to give a shout out to the folks who have joined the Patreon recently. I did a crop of names in the last episode, the interviews episode that I posted this past Monday. But now I will continue on for folks who have joined recently. So shout out to our newest God tier patron, Peyton Bergman. And shout out to our newest demigod tier patrons, Miranda H., Sarah Crowley, Stella, Rain Hunter, Lorea, Faith Marie, Quill McClellan, Sammy, Noemi, Courtney Board, Stephen Redmond, Bodacious Ben, Millie Geddes, Sammy, Enrique Pena, Chrissy Pels, Almuth with a silent H, so I'm guessing Almut or Almut? Jep, Brooke Suzanne, Michaela Brown, Red the Panda, Ava Fernandez, Julia B., Pamela Vanden Rosenberg, Jordan Kamen Riles, and Serena Rasmussen. Thank you all so much for your support. May Poseidon bless you that if you are ever taking a boat as a mode of transportation, that the waves aren't choppy and it's nice, smooth sailing for you. Now, if you're all caught up on the News Olympian and you're looking for a new podcast to listen to, especially as you're waiting for new episodes of the TV show to come out, you could listen to some of the other podcasts that I make. I'm an independent podcast boy, and I'm very biased, but I think the other shows that I make are very good. One of the ones that I make with a friend of mine that I think is fantastic, and we have a new episode out that is fantastic as well, is Horse. Horse is a comedic basketball podcast, but we remove all the gatekeeping. It is a basketball pod for all. We talk about the WNBA and the NBA in a way to bring you into the fandom. So if you want to be able to just have a conversation with folks about basketball or understand what's going on, why players have beef or what's going on in the social media, maybe you're seeing tweets and stuff about it. Well, now you can understand basketball a little bit more. We just put up a new episode where we did New Year's resolutions for every single NBA team. It was silly and goofy and a wonderful idea by my co-host Adam Amawala, who is a stand-up comedian and a very good friend of mine. You can check out Horse wherever you get your podcasts by searching for Horse or going to our website, horsehoops.com. And before we wrap up here, you're going to hear words from a few sponsors who make it feasible for me to be a full-time podcaster. Some of those ads will be read by me, such as one from our new sponsor, Thrive Market, if you want to get groceries delivered to you. And others of them won't be the ones that aren't read by me are inserted locally. So if you live in St. Louis, don't be surprised if you hear an ad telling you you should check out the Arch and that there's definitely no danger if you go and check out the Arch. But once those ads are complete, we'll get back to this episode of The New Olympian. This episode of The New Olympian is brought to you by Thrive Market. Now, in the Percy Jackson books, at the end of the last Olympian, we have the Olympians trying to turn over a new leaf. They're trying to appreciate their children and be there more and improve the things at camp for them and various other things where they're just trying to be more involved in demigod lives. Now, speaking of turning over a new leaf, it's the new year. New year, new you. What could you do to maybe better yourself in the new year? You could use Thrive Market. Thrive Market can be your go-to for all grocery and household essentials and the convenience of getting everything online quickly shipped to your doorstep can save you a bunch of time. Thrive Market carries brands only with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. And I can say this from experience because I've placed a Thrive order. It is getting shipped to me currently. And I was very impressed by all of the different brands that they had. Lots of organic food, lots of seafood that was wild caught, and lots of things that are sustainable and plant-based foods. Lots of really great options. You can also utilize different filters, which is really nice. So you can do 
things such as gluten-free or low-sugar alternatives. I'm trying to only eat wild-caught seafood this year as opposed to farm-raised and all that kind of stuff. And that was something that I was able to easily check on Thrive. And I have some wild-caught seafood on its way to my apartment. I'm so excited for it to arrive. And when you're a Thrive Market member, you can save money on every single grocery order. For example, on my recent order, I saved $20, which is fantastic. And on average, people save 30% with each order. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash TNO for 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash TNO, thrivemarket.com slash TNO. Get that gift and turn over a new leaf so you can be like the new Olympians post book five today. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Okay, we are back. It is arch time. Let's get into St. Louis. So they are going. And I wonder, do you know if they actually filmed this part at St. Louis? Do you think it was all volume stuff again? I'm wondering if they actually went on scene. Again, I've never been to the actual arch. The closest I've been to is going to a Cardinals game. This, I believe, is a mix of both because I do know that they shot some of this quote unquote on location, but these scenes were filmed on a college campus. And I forget what college campus that is, but I do know they didn't film like at the arch specifically, just like they didn't film at the Met. They like, you know, little CGI Mm -hmm. location shots and all that. So I think it was a hybrid of both. So I I do believe it took place in St. Louis, whatever university that they did go to, but it was not at the arch itself. Got it. I think what was funny the reason that I thought they didn't actually shoot it in St. Louis is when they revealed that they are going to the arch because Annabeth is saying, oh, there's a temple to my mother and it's not too far. It's not really hidden. The way that they show the arch is like through them walking across a puddle and then in the reflection, which is a cool reveal. But I also think is part of, well, if we don't actually have a shot of the arch, you know, <laughs> like, this is a good way to just throw it in and have it not be as obvious. I like that shot, though. That was a cool little transition. It's a cool shot. It's a cool shot. So the arch we learn is a temple to Athena, which is a bit of a change, but I think it's okay. Got to find a different reason to get there because there are some things in the book, like they just go to the arch because Annabeth's a nerd and they have time to kill, right? <laughs> like it's just the train line ends at St. Louis and they have they just want to do something. That's all they do. So I get that they have to have a purpose. Admire the architecture, you know, I guess. Yeah. And I think what's okay though, is that when they do arrive at the arch, we still do get Annabeth nerding out about the arch, which I think is an important thing Thing to keep. She still is rattling off facts, throwing in little digs at Poseidon, saying that the arch is earthquake proof and it's held up by math and symmetry. So we still do get her being a nerd, not necessarily the big architecture nerd, more of an Athena nerd, but I liked it. I'm glad that that found its way into the show. And I think also that runs parallel with a change they made in episode three, where they kind of stumble across on TMs, if I'm not mistaken. And it's not so much of being 
we're not lured by the smell of cheeseburgers and like, oh, well, we have time to kill, I guess. Like <laughs> in the book, like as we're seeing these changes unfold in the show, it reminds you that in the book, they are super gullible. Like yeah. for as 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 strong of demigods as they are, they are still 12-year-old children and they are still very susceptible to just the environment around them. So yeah, like the change of in the book, oh, well, I like architecture and we still have nine days until the summer solstice. So <laughs> we can spend at least 12 hours here. Well, here it's like, no, this is going to help us. We're going to pray to Athena and hopefully everything works out. Yeah, I think with the TV show, it's going to be harder than the book when I'm reading these, especially because I only started reading them a couple of years ago. I have to keep reminding myself they are 12, they are 13, they are whatever age they are. In the books, though, it was easier to remember because they do silly things like that and they get distracted by the smell of cheeseburgers. Whereas in the show, I think if they do things that are more foolish, you're going to have to remind yourself, these are younger kids. These are younger kids, especially when they ever start shooting the next one. Because the difference between Walker Scobell in this season and Walker Scobell, I saw at the premiere, he looks so much older, and I'm Bro. intrigued about how they're going to try to make it not just look like Percy got four years older <laughs> in the span of a couple months. The statistic is out there. He grew six inches over the course of production. Or no, no, no. Between the time he w first auditioned, which was January of 2021, and by the time they wrapped filming, February 2023. Wow. Which actually does kind of make sense. When you're a kid, I think my yeah. growth spurts were around like three to four inches per year. At, at first, right. I was like, holy crap, like six inches in eight months is actually insane. This dude's going to be seven feet tall by the time they get to season five. <laughs> but no, yeah, he, he's growing at, you know, an appropriate rate for uh, an adolescent. And we are going to get a much older Percy in the later seasons, but that's okay. We've watched Stranger Things. We're used to this kind of stuff. Yeah, I think it's going to be fine. I think the funny thing, though, was just it was funny at the premiere going from watching episode two where Luke is significantly taller than Percy and then meeting Charlie and Walker where Walker's like got like an inch on Charlie. <laughs> it was such a weird thing to be like, wait a second, I just saw you five minutes ago and you two looked very different. <laughs> uh, but look, that's what it is. It's just going to be and it's fine. It's okay. We just have to, I hope people remember, like, I hope this isn't a thing where people get all nitpicky, like, oh my God, he looks so much older. It's like, yeah, because that's how the world works. It's not, especially with the strike throwing a wrench into this thing. If there was no strike, I'm assuming they would already be mid filming too, right? Or like they would have at least started earlier than whenever they get to start. I know season two hasn't been renewed or announced yet, but you know. We'll see, we'll see, we'll see. I also like, there's an addition, Grover just having a hatred of Manifest Destiny at the Arch. I thought that was a fun ad. That didn't find its way into the book, I don't think, unless I'm forgetting. But I liked that it was in the show, whether that was a book thing or a new thing. Was that when he was just pointing out the like animals and like taxidermy? Yeah, it's like him talking to Annabeth saying that this is what the arch is about. And Annabeth saying, no, mortals think that this is what it's about. I'm talking about what it actually is, a temple to Athena. And then they really drive it home when Grover looks at a thing that describes Manifest Destiny and the image is someone killing a boar of sorts or a water buffalo looking thing. And then he goes off to try to figure out train stuff. And then Percy says to Annabeth, oh, he doesn't like when people mess with nature. So again, kind of driving home that pan point. I love that we're, you know, we're building towards that. It's going to be big. Yeah. 
Annabeth, I appreciate, shows regret for snapping at Grover. Her and Percy have a little bit of small talk. Percy makes a little, again, classic, like one of Percy's jokes that is super goofy <laughs> with doing a little British voice for like, oh, coming right down, I was using the potty. Like, it's good. Just little 12-year-old humor feels very authentic. I love it. That was a fun moment. And yeah, like I, I like that we're getting a little, little hint of the goofy Annabeth-Percy relationship. Yeah, they're melting that coldness a little bit almost completely when Percy starts talking about Poseidon, saying he doesn't want anything from Poseidon, and almost saying that he trusts Annabeth more than Poseidon at this point before Annabeth stops him saying, oh, you were about to call me a friend, which I think will make the because we're friends seaweed brain line hit harder because she's already in this episode pointing out, uh, you almost called me a friend. Like, I, I think it'll be a good aha moment. And on top of that, too, something I didn't even piece together was when they're on the train, he's opening anytime he asks a question with, this might be a stupid question. And then he says mm -hmm. it again of like, another stupid question. The second half of that line is because you're my friend, seaweed brain, any other stupid questions. So like, oh. these are the seeds getting planted right now. Mm -hmm. The seeds of monsters. But also, <laughs> we have a point, this is one of my favorite lines that I'm pretty sure is from the book, where Percy says, I've only been a demigod since last Saturday, so don't listen to me. If that's not from the book, it felt super true to the book. It sounded familiar, but I love that line, no matter what it is. It's just a really good and true to Percy type thing to say. So then we have them talking, but their conversation stops short because Percy collapses. The poison from the tail sting is starting to kick in. So then we jump cut to Annabeth and Grover just splashing fountain water on him, which is so funny. Such a great comedic moment. And what really heightens it is you have two people walking by looking very confused. And then I got to get this guy in the podcast. Guy on phone that gives condescending look to the kids in the fountain incredible extra work incredible work from this guy he's on screen for half a second and it was a captivating performance i remember when this scene not got leaked but there was again this was shot on location so someone filmed this fan camera like you know off in the distance and i remember watching i believe it was like last july july of 2022 wow annabeth and grover splashing water on percy and people just being like up oh, son of poseidon confirmed and it's like well yeah <laughs> i don't know if you've read the books i don't know if you see the trident in the show logo but yeah that, that's what we're getting so they try this it's not working and then echidna shows up i do love whatever happened there's a car that just goes like flying down the street <laughs> i just enjoy that little moment she starts walking up slowly and very menacingly we have a moment where at least according to the subtitles eerie whispering takes place and you can't hear what's being said but it's being established now in the show that monsters can kind of telepathically communicate with the demigods and just say it to one person so Clearly, she has said something to Annabeth because Annabeth asks the other two of them, did you hear that? And neither of them did. So then they decide that they're going to go in. Annabeth explains to the group that there's an altar at the top and they can ask Athena for help. They go inside and when they're in the elevator, they see Echidna and the Chimera inside the temple. So Grover is concerned, asking, that doesn't make any sense. That means Athena would have let them in. Why would Athena do that? And Percy keeps pressing, what did she say to you? What did she say to you? And Annabeth reveals that she said that her mother was embarrassed by their impertinence and that will be her doom. And Annabeth says, you know, we sent in the Medusa head and now Athena is embarrassed. 
why would she be embarrassed is my question. Like, wouldn't it be kind of cool that your daughter defeated Medusa, someone that you canonically don't like? I'm wondering what is the embarrassment of it? Well, I believe, uh, because I've only seen episode three once, and I've seen the other two episodes like six times. I forget when they explain this, but I need to rewatch the whole first half of the season. But the point is, mm-hmm. there were some people who were, who were chatting at like at the premiere, people who had also seen screeners, and they are under the impression that they might have changed a little bit of the Medusa, Poseidon, Athena dynamic to be more of Athena and Medusa had a little thing going on, as opposed to, I believe in canonical Greek mythology, Poseidon and Medusa have like yeah. a, a fling. I think the show made it seem more like that. The show, from what I'm remembering from episode three, was more of Medusa worshipped Athena and then Poseidon showed her love. And then she started to be embraced by Poseidon and then Athena got jealous or whatever. Like, it wasn't super clear how it all worked out. But I don't know that it was implying that Athena and Medusa had a romantic relationship. It was more of just like Athena was a god, Medusa was a worshipper of that god. Interesting. Well, it would make sense if Athena was like, if that was a former fling and then that former fling's head shows up on Olympus's doorstep and that was something that like caused a rift between her and Poseidon in the first place. Like, I feel like there are a lot of ways as to why Athena would be embarrassed by that. But my mind immediately goes to that option of they were once an item Hmm. and her former flame's head showing up kind of causes some turmoil. Yeah, I also wonder if we're taking it a different direction. I wonder if it was, I didn't kill Medusa. I cursed her so that she would have to live with this forever. Now that you've killed Medusa, it's undoing the thing that I did, which was curse this person to have snakes for heads forever and never be able to have someone close to her. And especially for thinking of these immortal beings where things last for thousands of years or short punishments are hundreds of years, maybe Athena was upset that Anna Beth ruined her cool punishment that she did for this girl. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure. That's a good shout too, because yeah, it, it, you know, the Olympian gods are very soft and fragile and that could be interpreted as a weak showcase of power. Yeah. And maybe if we take it just the simplest way, it's a bit of just like general irreverence towards the gods because it is kind of like them not necessarily like begging for attention, but it's definitely not burning food to talk to them. Like it's certainly a different step. So maybe even if it's outside of the particulars of the Medusa relationship, just the braggadocious nature of sending in something to the gods directly and writing a little note, especially with the way Hermes, when he gives that line as he leaves the elevator saying, you guys aren't going to believe this. Maybe Athena is just embarrassed that her daughter was along for the ride with this rambunctious Percy Jackson that's doing stuff. So I think there's a lot of different ways and maybe there'll be a conversation at the end of the season about it or in the future seasons. We'll have to see. But regardless, Athena is letting in Echidna and the Chimera. The team is on their way up to the top, but they're not feeling good about their chances of being able to pray to Athena and ask for her help. So when they get to the top, they see that there are a lot of tourists there. And I love that Grover's instant reaction is, we got to save everybody. Oh, it just shows how good of a soul Grover Underwood is. I love it. Grover gets it. And this is also him coming into his own a little bit more because it's him presenting what he wants to do as opposed to going along with the plan of Annabeth or going along with whatever Percy wants to do. Yeah. 
Annabeth wants to basically sacrifice herself, let Grover and Percy go down and bring everyone with them. She will slow down Echidna, who is a demigod killer. And Percy sneakily does a little reversal, acts like he is offering Riptide for her as protection, but then does the little handle grab pull move so that he can be on the other side of the door and they have to go down. Super cool. I loved this. This was such a fun change, a surprising thing. I like that there are new things that feel true to form but aren't necessarily from the book because then even as people that know what's happening we can still have surprising moments so it's still fun for established fans i loved this and it faked me out too because obviously like in hindsight i was like well of course percy needs to battle the chimera at the top of the arch it can't be annabeth because he's the one who has to fall to his you know plunge like it's in this episode title i plunged mm-hmm. to my death again now thinking about it we should have known it wasn't going to take place on the train because how are you going to plunge to your death on a train that's on the surface level whatever i digress maybe it took place in the bathroom it was that kind of plunge <laughs> Then he in is that the case, Supreme Lord of the bathroom. <laughs> technically, he almost plunged to his death in episode two. So yeah, <laughs> this is this is applicable everywhere. But yeah, it faked me out when he, when he did the little sword move at first. I was like, oh, this will be cool seeing Annabeth wield Riptide. You know, we've seen. I mean, I love Captain America. I love sure. when uh, Buck, Bucky Barnes wields the shield or Iron Man wields the shield. I was like, okay, here's a chance for a supporting character to use another character's like signature weapon. Yeah, Captain America uses Mjolnir, which is always the fun yes! moment. Oh my goodness. <laughs> of course. And and yeah, it was a nice fake out. It got me. And also, too, we didn't bring this up earlier, but Percy's sunken face, the way that they're selling the poison and the, mm-hmm. the chimera little spear, I was like, yes. Because at first, when his face looks like that, I was like, oh, man, this quest is taking a toll on young Percy, and I'm glad they're showing it visually. And then you're like, oh, no, he got poisoned. <laughs> like 15 minutes ago and uh now it's starting to set in yeah so he does the reversal they are stuck on the other side they are yelling at him saying that he shouldn't have done this and he's just kind of whispering to them i hope they can hear him through the door because he's saying you know i would never make it you guys go on but then he has to fight against the chimera who is very big and very cool and very intimidating but also majestic at the same time i can very much see the inspiration i talked to the vfx guys about it they said it was very lioness inspired which makes sense and percy whether it is his lack of swords training or the poison or a combination of the two he just gets bodied by the chimera which does hold true to the book like he doesn't really put up much of a fight against the chimera and i think that that is good i am wondering though i feel like in the book there was much more sword training are we gonna get a situation where percy learns more whether that's annabeth teaching him or something because this guy if the same person who fought the chimera is supposed to defeat Ares in a fight i'm not so sure that's a really good point because like you said when you're first starting that thought i was like oh well he'll probably train in like a season two or season three we'll get a montage but it's like no this dude needs to be pretty well equipped with a sword by episode seven maybe Mm -hmm. episode eight like i don't know when he's going to get that training per se and right now he's kind of like falling with style shout out toy story Mm -hmm. of like trying to get his way around things and i'm also glad he didn't defeat the chimera because like you said it is true to the books but it's also like when he mentions we fought monsters before and they've we've sent them all packing 
you know, you can only get lucky so many times before it starts to hurt the suspension of disbelief. Again, I know we're in a fantasy land. We're suspending our mm-hmm, disbelief mm-hmm. with every episode. But still, the fact that he gets through like the Minotaur with a little bit of luck, he gets through Medusa again with a bit of luck uh, with the Yankees cap and a whole team effort and a whole team. Like like you said, so it's like this is a scenario where it's like I could understand maybe him sidestepping and the Chimera falling with him. However, I'm glad that this was more of a, a no contest. He won by countout. He won by disqualification. This was not a decisive one, two, three chimeras, uh, you know, shoulders on the mat. Yeah, for sure. I think it makes sense for where he is in his journey. And it's something that can bug me if I'm watching other, whether it's YA or just other like superhero finding out their powers story. Too often you jump from, I have no idea what I'm doing to, I'm the greatest fighter of the world has ever seen. So I like that Percy's skills are not truly here yet. So then the echidna slashes Percy. The echidna kind of knocks him into the wall, then spews fire, and there's fire all on the floor, which looks really cool. Echidna makes a hole appear in the floor of the arch, and it's not looking good for Percy. He's hanging eventually and dangling. Echidna starts talking smack. At this point, I noticed that the high-pitched violins, the suspense violins, have been working overtime. <laughs> they have been going, I think, since maybe even Anna. Beth was saying that she was going to sacrifice, which also made sense because of Echidna saying it will be your doom. Annabeth, who loves a prophecy, maybe is like, I have to be the one to stay back. But those high-pitched violins had been going for quite some time. And I think it's good because once he loses his grip and starts to fall, those violins completely cut out and you just get wind whooshing noise, which makes that fall so scary, so scary, especially the way they shot it with the falling back and the first person view and the turn. Oh, I really love the way they did that. And I also loved that they recognized the geometry and the geography of the arch not being that close to the water. So rather than Percy just fall into the water, which I know people love to clown the books for having the water come out and reach him with basically a water tendril, I think makes more sense from a logistics point of view. And it also makes makes the Poseidon thing of it a bit more impactful. It's not just, oh, he happened to fall in the water and the water saved him. It is Poseidon actively saving Percy, which I think really ups the sentimental stakes. Yeah, shout out Bear McCreary. That dude was composing like Rent was doing this episode. <laughs> Even some of the stuff in the, the earlier episode, it just feels so like whimsical and fun and YA. Like like the, the tone of this score feels very Harry Potter, and I mean that in the best way possible. Like yes. it just it it's establishing a, a feeling of like childhood nostalgia with something that's completely new yet familiar at the same time. Yeah. And like you mm-hmm. said, the decision with the violins and then cutting it out, that shot of him falling out of the arch. I want that on a canvas on my wall. It's gorgeous. Yeah. It's a stunning shot. And I love what you said about the water literally reaching out because now I hope his reaction to that in the next episode is not so much complete sympathy for Poseidon because we know like he is very deserved of like, where have you been? But kind of understanding there are larger forces at play and he's kind of on your side, but he can't be there completely. But when you need him the most in that fight or flight scenario, he's there. Yeah, it's really nice. And speaking of the scoring, I was thinking of that because I think now that I've watched the first four episodes, I am getting into recognizing the score and singing it. Like now I'm singing the ending credits, and I was thinking, wow, okay, I recognize the song now. And literally, I thought this is kind of getting into Harry Potter territory where you just start to 
know the scoring of certain moments, you know, you're remembering songs that don't have any lyrics in them. And I think that is the testament of a good score. The score is good. It really does feel powerful and a little bit of Greek. There's a little bit of Spider-Man in it. I like it. I like it a lot. So Percy's now in the water. And as I have been told from my friend Johnny Frogstein, who's from St. Louis, accurate water coloring for the Mississippi, <laughs> which is great. And then Nareed comes in and she's a very interesting design. I always imagined more of a humanoid figure, but this is a little bit ethereal, almost a little bit on the ending of Nope energy, like very angelic looking. I thought it was a really cool design. I think that would be a fun one to see like what the full clear non murky water rendering looked like. Because I thought it was really fun. Yeah, the concept art for this show. I hope they release a full, like, the making of Percy Jackson book with all the concept art in it. And this was one kind of jellyfishy in a way. Yeah, yeah, That's kind of the vibe I got, right? And I'm glad they didn't show it in full HD because this is something where I think the bright lighting, I said this on another podcast, uh, I said it on my podcast, Riptide Radio. Something that's going to hurt this show is the CGI in bright lighting. I did not think Electo looked great in episode one, and it's also because it's bright day, you're on the Met steps, the shiny pearly white is glistening, there's not a cloud in the sky, but the Minotaur looked fantastic. And what was the thing there? Dark, rain, nightfall. You know, so this is a situation where I think if we zoom in on that kind of like baby blue water and we see the water nymph in like full glory, perfect, I don't think it would look super great. And so I'm glad that they kind of kept it like mystery and illusiony because that's what John Steinberg said of how we're following Percy's journey of he is experiencing these things. So if he is confused in that moment, which he obviously would be, he's learning to breathe underwater. He just fell from the St. Louis Arch. He's not going to have a clear picture of what's in front of him. So it makes sense that us as the audience also do not have that clear picture. Yeah. And I like the rest of this scene with Nereid explaining that she was sent by his father and encouraging him to recognize his powers. It is a cool learning of the powers moment. He doesn't just instantly think, oh, okay, I know how to breathe. This is weird but he is slowly coming to and has to be coached a little bit towards learning to breathe underwater, which I think tracks because that's just a very scary thing to have to do. It's one of those things where your brain is just like, I'm not supposed to do this. I'm not a fish. What's going on? So I really enjoyed it. And then he does take that breath in and the episode ends on such a cool moment. And I stayed through to the credits and the stuff for the after scene for next week on. Oh, I'm so stoked for it. We're getting Aries. We're getting the fates. We're getting Waterland. Percy's in a weird chair where metal's going on it which I guess might be a Hephaestus thing. Episode five feels like it's going to rip. I'm very excited. I'm stoked for episode five. One final thing I want to say on episode four, because sure. as you were saying this, it like lit off the light bulb in my head. The dichotomy, right, of this episode opens with Sally trying to teach Percy how to swim, and it ends with Poseidon essentially telling yeah. him he can breathe underwater and the Whoa. difference of their teaching styles, right? Because Sally, understandably, is like, you can do this, let's go, because her human rules are a little different. And when she understands the greater picture, she wants to move things along very quickly. And that kind of relates to what's said in the middle of the episode of like, at least with the gods, you know what you're getting, you know what the exchange is, where at the end, it can be super easy for Poseidon to be like, hey, uh, water nymph, uh, Nariad, just tell him he can breathe. Like, you can breathe, it's okay, you're son of Poseidon. But it's it's not that, it's, it's relax, breathe, take your first steps. And that patience, you know, it's been 12 years of Percy's life and it is ridiculously patient to the point where he's getting very frustrated. But that is 
the difference of a God's teaching style versus a human's teaching style. And I think that also contributes to the fact that these gods, these immortal beings have been around for thousands of years. So 12 years for them might be a week in the human world. And and so when you kind of compare and contrast the two, again, a lot of people want to put paint Poseidon as a villain. And I understand that, but the best villains are the ones who think they're the heroes of their own story. And I think Mm. that we're training the audience right now to think how Poseidon's thinking. It maybe doesn't make him sympathetic for you, but at least you can understand a little bit where he's coming from. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think everything there is good. And they have the line from Neri saying, oh, it was so hard for your father to stay away. So I think they are getting a little bit of trying to make Poseidon likable, but I hope they don't skew too far into recognizing that he does have some faults. I don't think they're going to do that, though, based on how grumpy Percy is towards him. I think they are going to hit that balance right of the complexity of Poseidon. He has good sides. He has bad sides. He's certainly better than some of the other folks on Olympus, but he's not perfect by any means, and he's not just fully sympathetic. So... I think they're going to hit that balance right. But yeah, that was episode four, which I absolutely loved and loved talking with you about it, Liam. Thank you so much for joining. If folks want to find you doing stuff, where can they find you doing stuff? Yeah, uh, I'm at Liam T. Crowley on all socials, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, most primarily Instagram these days, trying to post a lot more reels. And if you like Percy Jackson content, I've been posting one reel a day for the past like (laughs) two straight weeks, and it's going to keep continuing until I run out of content. And fortunately, from the premiere, I have a lot more stuff to share. Uh, And related to this episode, too, I have a little snippet of an interview with Suzanne Cryer uh, about her whole character and echidna and shooting that scene and everything so definitely be on the lookout for that and all my work otherwise uh, is on comicbook.com you can find all my articles on the website and then also on our comic book nation youtube channel which is our official podcast of the brand we have a weekly percy jackson after show called riptide radio every tuesday immediately following new episodes of percy jackson it was going to be wednesdays at five eastern (laughs) and then of course they surprised us with a prime time release date so fortunately Mm -hmm. because we have that prime time slot now the after show will now exist live immediately afterwards. Uh, so if you finish Percy Jackson at 9 p.m. with the rest of the world and you want to hear people talk about it, hear myself talk about it, hop on over to Comic Book Nation over on YouTube uh, and you can listen. And uh, we're also going to have exclusive interviews hopefully every week. Yeah, it's a fun time. And this is a great community. People like Mike have made it so strong. Uh, and it's always an honor to, to hop on the newest Olympian, Mike. Yes, it's a joy to have you. We will have you in the future, whether that is show stuff. We're going to do a little bonus episode that'll be on the feed of us talking about our premiere experiences. So folks will hear that. They'll eventually hear that Demigods and Monsters episode. And then when I get into Heroes of Olympus Town, you best believe you're coming through. That's going to be some fun stuff. And then obviously, as we're going to just continue to manifest, I know you're a big manifester. Look, there's, let's just, the show hasn't been added for more seasons, but we're hoping, you know, that it, it wasn't just a one and done being at that premiere, having that fun time. Like, let's run it back four more times at least. I think that would be a good time. I'm there. I'm there. You know I'm there. <laughs> let's do it. Well, Liam, thank you so much for joining. Listeners, thank you for listening. And until next time, when we see the wonderful stuff that all will come through episode five, until then, I'll perceive later.
Hello. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Newest Olympian. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Mike Schuber. I also run the social media and the website. Our editor is Sherry Guo. The music is by Bettina Campamanas and Brandon Grugel. And the art is by Jessica E. Boyd. If you can't get enough of the show, you can find us on social media. We're at Newest Olympian on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And we're on Reddit as well, reddit.com slash r slash The Newest Olympian. And if you really can't get enough of the show, you can check out the bonus content for the podcast at thenewestolympian.com slash Patreon. There's a bunch of bonus content you can get exclusive merchandise, lots of fun stuff there. And if you want other merchandise, you can go to our merch store, thenewestolympian.com slash merch. I mentioned the Patreon, so let's give a shout out to our producer level patrons, Kelsey Gillespie, The Damn Steam Nuggets, Vicky Garcia, Ellie Hauskovchova, Veronica Bartova, Frida Vikstrom, Megan Moon, Craig McRoberts, Taylor Payne, Sabrina Balsinger, Bony Pony, Polly Burge, Nikki Harris, Tatiana Schmidt, Sandra Rose, Josh Sayer, Josh Wilkie, Abby Ryan, Ashton Gabrielson, Marco Redhouse, Sam Sam Reeby, Riley Kiddas, Mary Kelly, Mrs. O'Leary, Milo Kim, Cece Reads 23, Sankoff, Julia Kendall, Ricky, John Drillsma, Rayla Matthews, Riley Draken, Luna Kadoon, Sky Mallory, Persasabeth, Aiden Parziani, Biggest Tyson Fan, Hunter Landstrom, Captain Jack Rackham, King Bastion, One Damn Distraction Coming Up, Ginger Spurs Boy, A Cup of Solace, Meg Roy, Lux, Neil, Olivia Krinicki, Mrs. O'Leary is Best Doggo, Bradimus Prime, Keepo Guy, McKenna Finley, Skylar Sisters, Demigod Nurse, Zachary Hamilton, Scott Sheldon, Sophie, and Natanya Page. If you want to help out the show in a non-monetary way, just talk about the podcast, whether that is posting about it on social media or reaching out to someone that you think would like the show or just leaving us a rating and review on whatever podcasting app you are using. All of those things help. Spreading the show's existence via word of mouth is essential for the podcast, so I'm very appreciative to anyone who has done that in the past or will do it in the future. But I'm just so thankful that you tuned into this episode and I hope you tune into our next episode where we will be joined by Johnny Frolicstein and Sherry Guo to talk about episode five of Percy Jackson and the Olympians, the TV show. But until then, I'll see you later. Hey everyone, how's it going? It's me, Asa Marmik. So here in the studio, I have something that is wrapped in bubble wrap, and I'm just going to pop a couple of the bubbles for this ASMR mix. I'm gonna, I don't want to pop too many of the bubbles because I might use the bubble wrap to mail something in the future. So here is going to be me crinkling and then popping some bubbles. I wouldn't be surprised if my software cleanup cleans up most of that, but hopefully you heard some of it. Thank you for listening.